Well, everyone, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the LSC and to this evening's event. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the school, which is why I get the fun job of welcoming you, and I actually get to sit up here next to Emmanuel Wallerstein. It's a great honor to welcome Professor Wallerstein to the LSE today. As I'm sure you're all aware, Professor Wallerstein has had an extraordinary career of leadership in sociology, but really in interdisciplinary social science. He has played a leading role in a variety of different conversations. I think probably most importantly through working in three domains of world systems analysis the historical development of the modern world system, the contemporary crisis of the capitalist world economy, and the structures of knowledge. He has pursued these in a wide variety of publications, but also as a very active institutional leader, as the former president of the International Sociological Association, as the chair of the International Gilbenkian Commission on the Restructuring of the Social Sciences, and as a leading force in developing the Fernand Brodel Institute and more generally the sociology department at the State University of New York at Binghamton, which became an important center for world systems analysis. I considered listing all of Professor Wallerstein's books in this introduction, but that would displace Professor Wallerstein's talk. And it's important that he has a variety of new things to say, as well as to repeat these. But it's most important, I think, to recognize the extraordinary achievement of his four volumes on the modern world system, which, beginning some 40 years ago, charted a rethinking of historical social science and the nature of the contemporary world on this historical foundation. He has also written extensively on the choices that are available for the 21st century, including utopistics, an account of these choices as they're available today, and on social science itself, including unthinking social science, the limits of 19th century paradigms. For Twitter users in the audience, let me note the hashtag for today's event, LSEIW. And let me remind everyone that there will be a time for question and discussion at the end of the talk this evening. Professor Wallerstein will speak on structural crisis of the modern world system. Emmanuel. Thank you. You'll forgive me if I stay seated, but this, this room permits it because it's wonderfully uh, graded upward so everybody can see me and I can see everybody from here. Um, I'm really talking about the end of capitalism as a system. Um, that's a position very few people actually take. Uh, I have taken it for now 30, 40 years at least. Um, and the arguments that I have to make are rather complex uh, and elaborate, and I don't know how much time, even with the extension of time that I've been given, how much time I'll have to make these arguments. So if I seem to go rapidly over various things, I'm doing that deliberately, but you can, you can call me uh, to order in the question period. So what kinds of arguments do I make? 
I make the argument, first of all, that capitalism is a world system, a world, uh, 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 a world, not the world necessarily, that, but there is a, a zone um, which began in the 16th century, uh, is still ex has expanded to include the entire Earth, uh, and is the unit of analysis uh, that I use. That's very important in my uh, approach. Secondly, capitalism is a historical system because all systems are historical systems. There is nothing that is not a historical system from the universe at the largest uh, to the tiniest nano system. And when you say it's a historical system, what you mean is that it really goes through three phases. It comes into existence. That has to be explained. It, didn't, it, it isn't automatic, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, it then leads what I call its normal life, according to certain rules which it uh, constructs and which govern the operations of all people with, and all institutions within the system uh, and can be spelled out. And then finally, there's a third stage, which is I call the stage of structural crisis, where the system is too far from equilibrium, cannot survive, cannot survive, um, but will be succeeded by something else. So, that's my premise. All right. Now, what, what I've called the third phase, the phase of the structural crisis of the capitalist world system, is not a phase that lasts two days, two weeks, two months, or two years. It started in the 1970s. It will go on perhaps to 2040, 2050. It's hard to predict exactly, right? So this is a longish phase, but the capitalist world system has existed for some 500, 600 years. Now, how did we get to the point where we're in a structural crisis? Okay? Uh, in the operation, in the normal operation of the capitalist system as a historical system, there are, in my view, uh, 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 cyclical rhythms, um, cycles if you want, but cycles within the structure. And the two main ones, the two principal ones uh, uh, that affect the operation of the system is one that I and many others call the Kondratiev long waves, um, which are expansions and contractions of uh, capital accumulation, and the hegemonic cycle, and which is the expansion and contraction of a hegemonic power hegemonic powers being necessary uh, to make the other cycle, the, the Kondratiev cycle, operate. Now, these cycles have the following feature. First of all, they are self-liquidating. That is to say, the when you, when the, as the two cycles expand, they create themselves the elements which bring them down, which force them 
uh, to I'm not I I won't develop that now. I have done that many times, but if you wish, I'll do it in the question period. And the second thing about a cycle is not only that it there are these cycles, but they have what I call the ratchet effect. Uh, I was going to put it up here, but I see that's not really possible. It doesn't there's, worry. If you want, there's a whiteboard here. Oh, that's the whiteboard. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was taught. whiteboard is something new to me, but anyway, it's very easy. You mean I just use my finger? I'd recommend the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. If this is time and this is percentage of something, right, then the ratchet effect is, is like this. Two steps forward, one step backwards. Two steps forward, one step backwards. That is to say, it's not possible to bring it all the way down again. And that, therefore, makes it able to approach higher point. That's, that's, that's the limits of what I'm going to do with the whiteboard. <laughs> okay. So, the two cycles reached what I consider to be their acme in the period roughly from 1945 to 1970. That is to say, it was the period of the greatest accumulation of capital in the whole history of the capitalist world system. And it was the period of the greatest expansion and intensity of power, of a hegemonic power, that is the United States in this case, uh, in the history of the system. So you had this immense, immense expansion, right? And uh, uh, that became a good deal of the problem. Now, what is the problem? The basic problem uh, is that costs as a percentage of the price that one can charge for uh, 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 a, a given item by producers have been going up steadily for 500 years. Okay? So what are the costs of production? There are really three major costs and you have to analyze each one of them. The cost, one cost is personnel. A second cost is, uh, uh, cost is inputs. And a third cost is taxation. And each of these costs are complex. Now let's take personnel. Obviously, if you produce something, there have to be somebody there engaged in the production process. Right? And there are really three kinds of people there. There are un basically unskilled workers who work at, uh, at, at, a, at a minimum cost. Right? Uh, how does that operate? Well, that operates in the following way. Uh, jo uh, uh, a producer offers jobs. Um, what, what do the, and these are of course very low in pay, etc. Over time, over time, workers at the bottom can engage in some kind of syndical action. There are many different kinds of syndical action, but they put pressure 
on uh, uh, on the uh, um, producer uh, to raise their pay, uh, and there are many reasons why producers will want to raise their pay as long as they're making money, because they don't want any sh uh, stoppage of work. So, what happens when it gets too high? And we we have a very good phrase in English, what happens, it's called the runaway factory. The runaway factory is as old as the capitalist system. That is to say, peop, the, the producer moves his operation, which is an expensive thing to do, moves his operation to some other place which is his, has, quote, historically lower wages. What, what could that mean, historically lower wages? Well, basically, it means the following. If I move from where I am now, and the wages are getting a little bit high, and I move to some place far away uh, that has uh, people in the rural areas who are not involved or minimally involved in the, uh, in the monetary system, you can induce these people to come and work for you, right? at a price lower than you were paying in the place from which you moved, but which is for these people an increase in their real income. So it's a win-win situation at the beginning. Right? And then what happens eventually, of course, is after about 25 years or so, that's just a, uh, an order of magnitude, the, the workers who have, been dis who have moved into town or where the factory is, usually in towns, um, uh, and begin to feel more comfortable there, learn their way about, become more aware of, 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 of the fact that they are being paid relatively low by world standards, and they begin, in fact, to engage in some kind of syndical action. And after a certain while, all the uh, employer can do is a further runaway factory. So you can keep doing this over 500 years. Now, they're not the only personnel. The second set of personnel are middle cadres, right? People, skilled workers, uh, white-collar workers, etc. And the as, as time goes on and as uh, production gets more complex. You you need these more of these people for two reasons. One, it's you 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 need them to operate the system, uh, which has become a much more complex system. And secondly, you need them politically to help you uh, repress the the unskilled workers and repress them in two ways. One, physically, but secondly, by example, because they they they. They indicate the possibility of upward mobility for a limited number of people, but that attracts especially the more the, the people who are likely to be the leaders of, of a syndical up, upsurge. And the third group, of course, are those on the very top, uh, the 1% the who are raking in the money. Uh, and uh, what's happened is the, these people are not engaged in earning profits. They are engaged in rent. The, the owners, 
the theoretical owners of the enterprise are, 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 are the shareholders. And as you very well know, shareholders get relatively little compared to the rent uh, uh, collectors. And this, of course, uh, has been particularly spectacular in the last 25 years, the amount of rent that the top group can, can achieve. Well, that's that, that. So that explains one cost. Then there's the inputs. Obviously, if you produce something, you need various kinds of inputs which you have to purchase from elsewhere, right? Now, there are three different kinds. The, the secret of capitalism is they want to pay as little as they can for the inputs by getting other people to pay their costs. And what are the costs that they can get other people to pay? First of all, there, there is in production, any kind of production, always some toxicity. What do you do with the toxic uh, uh, elements? Well, basically, uh, what you do is you throw them in the nearest river. Okay? That costs you very, very little, right? Uh, it, it, uh, it gets rid of the toxicity. Uh, the basic problem with that is that over time, historically, uh, there are no rivers left to throw it in, uh, there are no more trees to cut down, etc., 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 and suddenly we discover that we have an ecological problem, right? And how can you solve the ecological problem? You can tell the, the state um, to clean up, um, and that, of course, costs money, so they're going to have to raise taxes to do that. In addition, the state is going to say, if they do clean up, which is not very often, but if they do clean up, they're going to say, it's crazy for us to clean up if next week you're going to throw more stuff in the river. So what we have to ask you to do is internalize your costs, not externalize your costs, right? And the producers will say, well, that will reduce our profits, which is true, which is true. Okay, now the second kind of cost of inputs is 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 is, 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 re, is replacing them. If you cut down trees, if you uh, you uh, after a while you don't have any trees left, right? So you have to replant the trees. Right? Now replanting the trees is a costly process. Um, historically, uh, producers did not do that. They are now under certain kinds of pressure to do that. That's raised the cost. Um, and, the th and the third kind of um, uh, input cost is what we call infrastructure. Um, there's no point in producing something if you can't get it to where it needs to go in order to be sold. And that means transport, and that means communications. Right? And basically, historically, producers have paid very little portion of this. The largest portion is that of the uh, of various kinds of states and so forth, various kinds of political structures. And again, that's become more and more and more expensive um, as uh, we let things slide by uh, in order not to pay the bill, and then it gets even more expensive, etc. So that's the, third, the second kind of cost. And the third kind of cost is taxation. Uh, everybody seems to think that taxes are, are, are low. They are not at all low. 
First of all, you have to say, who is taxing? And usually people only count the national state. But of course, national states have units within them that also engage in taxation. There are, there are all kinds of sources of, of, of political taxation, right? which uh, has been going up over the years, largely as a result of the work of the anti-systemic movements in democratizing the, the states, that is, getting them to engage in what we call the welfare state, which is money invested in, in education, in health, and in lifetime support, pensions, unemployment insurance, etc., etc., etc. So the taxation has, in fact, gone up. Uh, it's perfectly true that it think of the ratchet effect. It's perfectly true that in the year 2015, taxes generally across the world are, lo are, are lower than they were in 1970. But the, the real point of comparison is with 1945. And you'll see if you do the exercise that the actual taxation levels across the world are higher than they were in 1945. That's the ratchet effect. Okay? Secondly, um, uh, there are other people who engage in taxing. There's something called uh, corruption, and we usually think, oh boy, that, that, that's the failed states, that's the South, etc. It is. Of course, there's piles of corruption there, but it doesn't even begin to compare with corruption in the United Kingdom, United States, France, Germany, Japan, because that's where the real money is. And the corruption is absolutely enormous, absolutely enormous. Okay, now if you are the, the producer and you have to buy off somebody, whether he's in Malaysia or he's in the UK, it doesn't matter, that's a tax. From his point of view, that's a tax, okay? And those taxes have been going up. But there's a third. There's something called the mafia. Now the mafia are people who intrude on a, 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 an, an unclear situation with, you know, the famous your money or your life uh, kind of thing. So, in fact, mafias are all over the place and growing, especially with, with increased shortages of various goods. And, of course, you have to pay them off. And if you pay them off, that's a tax. That's a tax on the producer. Right? Now, the, the mafias themselves, of course, try to legitimate their money over two or three generations, so there's a succession of new mafias, but that's beside the point. Uh, so, that, those costs have been going up. Okay. Well, basically, the argument about capitalism and its, uh, its limits is that the rising costs of production uh, reached a point more or less uh, roughly in about 1970 or therefore, where uh, they were too high as a, as a percentage of the possible asymptote. So some scholars have tried to say that when it reaches about an 80% point, it begins to shake instead of going up steadily. And, 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 and that's the sign uh, that we uh, have gotten to near the asymptote. Now, question. 
why couldn't you simply raise the price on which you sell the goods? That's what they did always historically. As costs went up, they simply increased the, 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 the sales price. Why can you no longer do that? And the answer to that is uh, effective demand. Now, effective demand, why? There, you're going to say, or people always say, but there's new technology, isn't there? That people will want to buy these new, the new technology. And then there's growth, right? You see it every day. The stock market prices keep going up and up and up and up. Well, growth is an illusion. It's irrelevant, Right? There are all kinds of ways you can play the game of getting higher figures on the stock exchange. But the crucial element in uh, analyzing a capitalist system is not growth, but employment. And if you look at employment figures, right, they have been going up steadily across the world for the last 30, 40 years. And there's every sign that they will continue to go up. Why will they continue to go up? because uh, we have reached a point where the producers are not producing anymore uh, in order to, because they don't have customers, because we have, uh, we have reached the limits of, now that, that's the two limits there. One limit is uh, if you, if you r save money, by moving to new areas, by runaway factories, you have to have rural areas from which to uh, bring in these new historically lower-waged people. But we are running out of such areas. That's called the deruralization of the world. And we're already at a 50-60% and we're going up, up, up. So we don't, we don't have the possibility of bringing in these workers. The same thing with the exhausting the um, um, input of, of detoxification. So we are running out of consumers. If you don't have consumers, you don't have effective demand. Henry Ford understood this very well. He paid his workers $5 a, a day, which was at the time before the First World War, a fabulous amount. Why? He said, because I want them to buy my cars. And they're not going to be able to buy my cars unless they have the money, right? Okay. So, um, if we've exhausted the consumers, because we are not merely exhausting the, uh, the, the, the factory workers, which we historically thought was the group we worried about. But now we're exhausting the white-collar workers because all these wonderful inventions that you, you know, the iPod, the this pod, the that pod, right, don't require people, very few people, right? So we are no longer employing people, moving them from uh, factory work to white-collar work because we're running out of consumers in the white-collar work. This is the fa fabled decline of the middle class that everybody is talking about. So, structural crisis arrives. And what does that mean? Well, it means basically two things. It means bifurcation and chaos. Now, 
bifurcation technically it, it's it's a term that the physical scientists invented right when when uh, there can be two possible solutions to the same equation that's a, a bifurcation it's not supposed to happen right and in fact the argument of the uh, uh, scientists of uh, complexity is that it always happens at, at the point where you've moved too far from equilibrium. You get a bifurcation of two possible outcomes and you have chaos in the, during. So what are the solutions to the bifurcation? Well, there are two possible solutions, right? I give them names, but you don't have to worry about the names. I call one solution the spirit of Davos and the other solution the spirit of Porto Alegre. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean the spirit of Davos is to maintain, the objective is to get a new system that is not a capitalist system, but retains the worst features of capitalism, hierarchy, um, exploitation, and polarization. Perfectly possible to do that in many ways other than in a capitalist market system. And the question is which, which ways they will find. And the other fork, which is the spirit of Porto Alegre, is to create a system which is relatively democratic and relatively egalitarian. I want to emphasize two things. One, relatively. There's no such thing as, as, as perfect uh, equality or perfect... Um, democratization, but you can do an awful lot better than any system has in the history of the world. Right? So these are the two possibilities. Um, now, what is the characteristic of a bifurcation? It has two, two characteristics. They're crucial. One is you cannot you can be sure of only one thing, that at the end of this process, you will be out of the capitalist system forever. Forever, I don't know, but for now. Okay? And that, that, so we can predict, we know that the system cannot survive, but it's intrinsically impossible. It's not merely a lack of knowledge. It's intrinsically impossible to predict which of its two tongues of the bifurcation will win out. And that's what's going on now, the struggle over uh, uh, which of the two prongs will win out. Now, people say, yeah, but you know, most people, I, I just gave this talk uh, or something similar to it two days ago and somebody got up and said, you know, most people are not convinced by what you're arguing. They, as far as they're concerned, the system can be reformed uh, in one way or another, and improved in one way or another, and it will go on. Right? And he's right. Absolutely. Most people, most people think that the system will go on, and they operate in the way that they think is normal. Nothing special. Right? And the, the uh, other thing is 
the other answer people give you is, well, they're the BRICS, or other countries like the BRICS, right? Aren't they, in fact, uh, increasing uh, the, uh, their, their access to wealth and so forth? Won't that solve the system? It may move it from Western Europe to East Asia or, or whatever, but it's, it solves the problem. And the answer is that neither, right, uh, the, the concept of people that they can just continue to operate the system, nor the expansion of the BRICS will solve the problem. They will make it worse. They will all make it worse because the system operates on the assumption that the, there's an unequal division of the, uh, of, of, of the surplus value. That's, that's basically it. I usually say symbolically it's 1%, 19%, and 80%. 1% goes to the people on the very top. 19%, uh, 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 the people on the very top get an enormous chunk. The 19% which are the cadres basically get an in-between amount, and the people, the 80%, uh, uh, are basically screwed. Okay? But what, if you expand the, the, um, the 19% chunk, then what happens is it's, you, can ha you have basically less left for the 1%. And you, that undermines their interest in maintaining the system. So part of my argument is it's nothing new for people on the bottom to be angry about the system and every once in a while in various ways erupt against the system. What is in addition true now, which was never true before, is that from the point of view of capitalists, at least intelligent capitalists, the system isn't profitable to them anymore, and they need to find a new system which can be profitable. Okay? Now, I usually end this by saying, look, people talk about determinism, and they do talk about free will. And it's, it's the longest argument, not only within... Western philosophy, but within most philosophies of the world, which is true? Are we in a world that is determinist, or are we in a world in which there is free will? And I say that's the wrong way to analyze it. You've got to historicize these concepts. And what I say is, when a system operates normally, it's basically determinist. That is to say, no matter how much effort and energy goes into changing the system, it gets pushed back to equilibrium, to a moving equilibrium to be sure, but pushed back to equilibrium. And my usual examples are the two classic examples of revolutions, the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And, and if you analyze the French Revolution starting for whatever point you want to start, 1787 or whatever, and you take it through take it all the way up to the First World War, you will see that 
the enormous social effort that went into transforming France uh, uh, and, and the world uh, was brought back basically to equilibrium. Um, Mark Bloch wrote a long, long piece uh, showing how uh, the whole thought that we had, uh, that France had, had, so to speak, eliminated uh, the, what were called the feudal uh, transfers uh, was simply not true. Was simply not true. Okay? So, the same thing with the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution was an attempt to complete uh, a long-standing effort of, of, of Russia uh, to modernize, to uh, um, industrialize, etc. And uh, the Russian Revolution was an immense social effort. And if you look at where they were by 1970 and compare it to where they were in 1914, there isn't all that much difference. Okay? It was brought back to equilibrium. So, okay, but what happens in a stru structural crisis is chaos. And chaos means that there are sudden, enormous movements in all directions, uncontrollable, uncontrollable. So I say what that means, or what we can translate that into, chaos is a time of free will. That is to say, there, there's nothing that brings it back to equilibrium. And indeed, every little push in every direction affects the outcome. So I always end these talks with the metaphor of the butterfly. What we discovered 40 or 50 years ago uh, was um, that the flapping of a butterfly's wings over here changes the climate at the other end of the world by just that much, but just that much uh, it changes uh, the uh, track so that it, 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 it it's widens out and widens out and widens out. So the way one affects the outcome is by being a butterfly. We are all little butterflies. And if enough of us are engaged in enough actions which push in the right direction, right, the direction we prefer, right, we may be more effective than the alternative group, the, what I call the global right as opposed to the global left. The global right is also trying to push things in their direction. Right? And I don't have time to develop the fact that both the global left and the global right are internally split about what, what their strategy should be, but they are trying to make the system tilt in their direction. And if you come back in 20 to 40 years, you will be able to see in which direction it has tilted, and then we'll be into a new, qualitatively new system. Maybe a worse one if the global right wins, maybe a better one if the global left wins, but we don't know. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Emmanuel. That's rich and interesting and hopefully provocative. And we'll have a range of questions. And I'm going to take the chair's prerogative and ask a first one to get this rolling with that. So before we come to the ways in which small actions can have effects at a distance in the time of chaos and the butterfly effect and and how we might change that. I want to ask about the, the other side, if you will, the, the butterflies on the right, perhaps, but I want to understand a little better the contrast you made implicitly between extracting rents and extracting capitalist profits and the, the key of that to the system. And thinking about the global predicament today and the role of finance and in various ways, I want to ask to what extent you see the what's often discussed as sort of financial capitalism or the current face of finance as, in fact, a system for extracting rents, um, high rents to finance or high rents to um, corruption in finance, like we've been seeing with the HSBC stories in the last few days. Do you see this as a continuation and intensification of capitalism more or as the search for another profitable system, in a way, a different than what you said, that um, if capitalists couldn't get profits within the capitalist system, they would search for another profitable system. How do you see this kind of intense reliance yeah. on finance? Uh, yes, I didn't mention the word finance, did I? Um, look, what we call financialization is an absolutely normal part of the operation of the capitalist system. And here I, uh, I call upon Brodel's analysis. Brodel uh, said, look, um, what happens in the, what he called the higher level of the operation of, uh, um, of economic systems is um, that there are some capitalists, some capitalists who are specialists. They specialize as producers, they specialize as merchants, they specialize as bankers, right? And then there are some capitalists who are generalists. They don't specialize in anything. They're the ones that always win out. Because the generalists are just go where the money is temporarily, okay? Now, what happens in a Kondratiev A-B phase is that in the A phase, you make your money fundamentally out of production, right? And you create new capital, and you accumulate it, okay? That's simplified, but that's, that's what happens. Then when you have the B phase, right? Uh, basically, what's happened in the B phase is that you aren't able to make the money out of out of production for the time being until we have a new up, upturn, right? You can, you can make your money in finance. What does that mean, make your money in finance? That, that isn't taking rent. That's taking, that is moving capital from one group of persons to another group of persons. So all it is is a, is a lateral shift. No new uh, surplus value has been created. Uh, by that. Um, so there's some people lose out, other people gain. The intelligent capitalist is among the, the gainers. And as soon as he can, 
puts his money into some new kind of production which can create new capital uh, accumulation. But I thought when you started, you're going to ask a different question. So let me answer the different a question you did ask, ask a better question of yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. It's what is the global right, you see, uh, uh, thinking of as strategy? And they are split. They are split into two groups. One group says the way we can win in this struggle with the people of Porto Alegre is repression. Hit them over the head, hit them over the head very hard, and don't give them any space whatsoever. This is basically what uh, uh, our dear Mr. Cheney uh, advocates um, and has advocated for a long while, but he's not the only one, right? And that's, that's a, a position. There's another group that says, now look, you know, if you hit people over the head, you get them very angry, uh, you, it doesn't work in the, in the middle run. It may work in the short run, but it's, it's not an intelligent way to handle them. Instead, what we'll do is the Delampedusa uh, strategy, right? We, we will change everything in order that nothing change. And how do you do that? You invent very tempting things. You, you, you talk about green capitalism. You, you the sharing economy. The sharing kind of economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you hope by this tactic to persuade people who would have tendencies towards the global left to say, oh boy, these people are really uh, doing something, changing something. Let's jump on their bandwagon. Now, I mean, I think... Um, uh, you know, somebody like George Soros is basically advocating that, uh, has been for a long time. Uh, and so they're having that fight, okay, among themselves. And we, we're not even sure who's going to win out among the global right. The global left is incidentally also split. Um, uh, I can talk about that later. Uh, but what, what, what you have is an incredibly confusing situation where you don't merely have two solutions, you really have four solutions competing with each other uh, in, in this. And of course, I, one can understand that most of us are pretty confused, which adds, however, uh, to the difficulty of the system. Because in the confusion, we, d we, we freeze. And th that's a lot of people are freezing. And that in, in hits the effective demand uh, very strongly. So we freeze geopolitically. We freeze uh, in terms of the world economy. Uh, and we, we, we are like that. And uh, we're not being butterflies. Okay. Now, butterflies, it is your chance to ask questions. Uh, may I ask you to wait for the microphone when you do so and to say who you are as you ask your questions? This will be first to right over here. It's man in blue plaid shirt, striped shirt. Um, hi, uh, my name's Peter from uh, DCU in Dublin. Um, uh, I guess my question relates to your last point. Um, in terms of this sort of <coughs> competition you referred to between the global left and global right, um, and the potential for the, the new system to emerge. 
through what avenues, in your opinion, do you think, which avenues hold the best potential for the global left to achieve its preferred outcomes? I mean, do you think it's really possible through existing institutional structures, uh, if we look to the results uh, of the election in Greece, for example, and the rise in popularity of the Podemos party in Spain, for example, do you think these sort of movements hold real potential to, um, uh, to achieve the preferred outcomes for the global well, left? Of course, I said I didn't mention the word finance. I also didn't mention the word anti-systemic movements, uh, and that because just so much time. Uh, let me briefly talk about that. Okay, anti-systemic movements uh, came into existence uh, basically into real existence somewhere in the 1870s or so. What do I mean by anti-systemic movements? Well, there were two kinds. First of all, there were social movements which said the problem is capitalism and uh, the workers have to take over from the uh, bourgeoisie. And there were national movements who said the oppressed peoples have to get their uh, independence, uh, etc. Uh, and uh, in the 1870s, these movements argued about the appropriate strategy. And there were in each of these movements uh, people who argued uh, um, the, the state uh, is oppressive, the state is our enemy, uh, we don't want to have anything to do with the state, we have to transform ourselves culturally and so forth, and that way we will uh, we'll win out. And the, there was a second group who said, uh, look, the state is oppressive. Yes, you're right. And for that very reason, you can't ignore it. You can't because they'll just oppress, repress you. So you've got to engage in what that came to be called the two-step strategy. You've got to uh, first take state power and then change the world, okay? Um, now, this group, which were uh, basically uh, uh, in, in, in the social movements, were, were the Marxists of the two varieties, social democrats and communists, but they both had the same strategy. It's just some difference on how they'd get to the, take over the state. Uh, and then in the national movement, the political nationalists. They went out. They went out basically uh, in, in the argument. And they dominate the scene, right? Until 1968. Uh, the World Revolution of 1968 undid something. Basically, between 1945 and 68, the anti-systemic movements, that is, the old left, communist parties, social democratic parties, nationalist movements, came to power in almost all the world. A third of the world was governed by communist parties. The, what I call the, the pan-European world was basically dominated by uh, um, 
social democratic parties, of course, it was alternating power, but in a system in which the conservatives said that they only wanted to fiddle with this, they agreed with the welfare state, basically. Right? And the nationalist movements came to power in what was then called the Third World. And what happens in 1968, in the World Revolution 68, among other things, this isn't the only thing, is they turned the revolutionaries, the young revolutionaries, uh, probably people in LSE, uh, as well as everywhere else, said, look, you came to power, but you didn't change the world. It's as much economic... Uh, uh, space between the wealthy and the poor, as before, with the, our, our systems are not more democratic, probably less. It's not true that there's no class system. You just call it now the nomenclatura or some other such name, but it's also a class system, etc. All right, you deceived us, right? And we've got to uh, uh, move on from you. Uh, now, what what that did? was um, liberate uh, the real left and the real right from their domination by uh, centrist liberalism. And we returned to uh, a system with three ideologies competing with each other. And suddenly, uh, we saw the global right took enormous advantage of it in the 1980s and 1990s, right? By bringing down governments, by forcing the Washington Consensus uh, on states all over the world, etc. cetera. Uh, and then we have the... They, ran, they run out of their... They exhaust uh, their welcome, so to speak, because what happens is they do not, in fact, uh, offer a significant uh, improvement in the, in the basic living standards of most people. Uh, and we get the return of the global left. Uh, what's the return of the global left? I'm, I'm abbreviating very fast. Um, it's, it's, it's the Zapatistas. It's the, it's the Seattle... Um, demonstrations. It's the founding of the World uh, uh, Social Forum in Porto Alegre. Uh, now, the interesting thing today for the global left is we thought that in 1968, with the uprising of the revolutionaries, that we had liquidated, we they, the, the revolutionaries thought that they had liquidated the whole vertic so-called verticalist position of the of the old left. Uh, that they were the the verticalists. I, I, I see it's. I ha have to spell out still more. The verticalists historically said, "Look, there can only be one movement in any given country." Uh, coming to power means coming to power in a particular state. All other movements have to be subordinated and defer their demands until our one movement, uh, the uh, major movement or the main movement, uh, wins its revolution, which in one case is the social revolution, 
and the other case is the National Revolution. Um, and they were able to persuade, uh, in effect, the, the right and the left to uh, uh, subordinate themselves to the centrist liberals. What, what happens now, right, 40 years after the so-called horizontalists won out, as opposed to the verticalists, is that the whole issue has been reopened exactly as though 1968 hadn't happened. In the global left today, we have a, a renewed verticalist camp and a renewed uh, horizontalist camp. We, we have uh, uh, groups that are saying um, you have to take political power and the other group saying you can't wipe out the people at the bottom. Look, this is very clear and very visible if you look at what happened in, in Latin America in the 1890s, in 1990s and 2000 first, first decade. Right? In one country or another, right, in 80% of the countries, a left or center-left movement came to power in most cases for the first time. The basic explanation of that was the decline of U.S. hegemony and its ability to do things in Latin America. But they did. They came to power. So, and then they tried to create Latin American structures from which the United States and Canada were excluded. Right? And they did create a number of such structures. Right? Um, so we have these people in power in Brazil, in Venezuela, in Ecuador, in Nicaragua, uh, etc. But even in Chile, right, uh, a more centrist but still claims to be left of center. Okay? Now, all these governments, all these governments say, we have to develop the country. And the way we develop the c country is we engage in extractive activities, uh, mining, but all other kinds of extractive activities uh, could be uh, logging, etc., 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 in order to have the money with which to allow people uh, to uh, live a better life. And then there are groups who call themselves indigenous, who say, what you are doing, what you are doing is in fact destroying movie, with your extractive activities, what you're doing is, is, is destroying our traditional areas and, 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 and undoing our, our, our communal life, etc. Right? Uh, and therefore, we say you, the, ext the extractive leftists, are doing the same thing that the previously conservative governments did, and, uh, against which we were fighting, to which the extractive governments say, you are doing the work, you are allying yourself with 
the right wing in our countries who want to stop these left governments from, from engaging in their redistribution and their taxation. And also you're objectively uh, doing what the United States wants you to do, which is weakening our governments. So we, we, what we have is two elements of the global left refusing even to talk to each other. Uh, not, not to speak of resolving the problem. So, and there we're right back to where we were prior to 68. So that's my two wings of the global left and there were my two wings of the global right, which is the four uh, possible places we are moving. Okay, thanks. Uh, Claire, have me a second. So you're at row five or six there and then I'll keep your hand up so we can get you the microphone. <coughs> Hi, um, I'm Claire Hemmings. I'm from the Gender Institute here at LSE. Can you hear me? Why don't you get up because it's a little harder for me. You can't me. hear me? Yeah, go ahead. I don't think getting up will make much difference. <laughs> um, thank you very much um, for your talk. I was... Um, the, the, the very large macro-historical view that you provide, I'm largely persuaded by. And I think one of the reasons oh, is... Uh, I'm sorry. Can you not hear me? Does it, do I need to ah. Can you hear me, Craig? Yeah, I think. Can you hear me now? I can Is hear you better? now. Okay, great. Good. Um, so I work here at the Gender Institute at LSE, and I was going to ask you uh, two, two questions. One is about uh, the role of um, Reserve Army of Labor in your analysis, which I... The role of what labor? The reserve. reserve army of labor. Reserve army of labor, yes. Um, and the other is my own experience of feminist social movements is, is, is one of um, profound disappointment <laughs> for the reasons that you describe, which is that inevitably whoever comes into uh, increased work is likely to want the same privileges as those people who precede them. Um, but I'm really struggling with what it means to try and change people's values. How do you change what it is that people want? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, the reserve army of labor, uh, there are no jobs for them. <laughs> that, that's the real problem. The reserve army of labor historically really meant right, that uh, if... You, you pushed people out of the labor force and then they came in elsewhere because something new got expanded, right? And, but in order for that to happen, there has to be uh, uh, the possibility of, of new production. And in order to have new production, you have to have, uh, basically that was my answer, you have to have uh, effective demand and that, that is. Now, how do you change people's values? <laughs> well, I'll be honest, very hard. I, I, um, you know, sometimes I, I say, look, uh, there are three things uh, we all need to do. One is, uh, uh, 
intellectually try to figure out what's happening, okay? Uh, and uh, that's a matter of enormous conversation. That's what I'm doing right now with you and you're doing with me. We're trying to figure out what's happening in the world, okay? Uh, that's a task everybody has to engage in. Once we think we've figured out what's happening, we make our moral choices. Uh, that's where the values come in. Um, uh, what kind of a world do you really want? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it may be that uh, you think that the best kind of world that you could possibly have is a kind of renewed social democracy, uh, and you're going to throw your, your eggs in that basket, and others say, no, that, 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 that's a historically failed alternative, uh, and uh, we want something more serious, etc. That's a debate about moral values. Uh, and then, once you've resolved that debate, you have to say, now what politics would actually most likely implement that? Um, and that's another question. But these are not three separate groups. These are things we all must do. But the second one is, I would uh, agree with you, is the, is, is the hardest to... Um, sometimes the um, indigenous movements in Latin America talk about... Uh, how shall I say? Changing our civilization by which they really mean what you're talking about, changing values, and trying to persuade people that uh, growth per se, uh, there's good growth and bad growth. The growth can be a cancer. Uh, cancers are growths, aren't they? Um, so uh, it's a matter of balancing, of, of trying to figure out... Uh, what collectively would optimize the good life, buen vivir in, 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 in Latin America, the good life uh, for most people or all people. And that's a debate. Uh, and when we're, if we get to the point where we're really having that debate, we're doing well. Okay? Okay. Good. Uh, there's a question in the second row center. Or so, oh, or if you've seen someone else first, that's fine. Is there a teal sweater in the second? Yeah. And the next one will be in the first row right over here. Um, um, my question is with respect to Egypt and the Arab Spring. Uh, do you see the fact that the uh, spring happened itself as an act of uh, free will and chaos? Or do you see the fact that Egypt's gone from one kind of repression to another, uh, an act of going back to a state of equilibrium, so to speak? Yeah. Well, Egypt is a very good example. Um, basically, Egypt was uh, an awful dictatorship with a... Um, <coughs> and a president, I guess he was called a president, and when <laughs> the uh, when the Arab, whatever it is, spring 
I, I don't really like that phrase, but when it, when it started in, in Tunisia, right, uh, it caught on in Tunisia. And then a few weeks later, people started to imitate it in, in Egypt. And we all applauded, right? Um, and remarkable, it suddenly, he had to flee or resign. He didn't, he didn't get, get to flee. Huh? Okay. Now, Egypt was basically run for the last 50, 60 years by the army. Uh, they had front men of various kinds. Now, what happened when the young people able to get people into the streets and, and, and do what they did and, and, and turn, force the, the president to resign and so forth, um, two groups jumped on the bandwagon immediately after that, right? One group was the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood had had a, a kind of deal with uh, the, the regime. They were allowed to have certain limited rights and they could have certain members of parliament. Uh, they could get some things they wanted provided they didn't create too much fuss. Right? And the second group uh, that jumped on the bandwagon was the army. And they said, oh, it's wonderful, the people have spoken and we support the people. Now, both these groups jumped on the bandwagon, and this is, this is typical of how the armies operate and repressive forces operate. They jumped on the bandwagon in order to take over uh, the process. And they succeeded in taking over the process. And then so then we get this uneasy period when there's a, uh, uh, a new leader of the army and there's a Muslim Brotherhood wins the elections and the Muslim Brotherhood thinks they can move a little faster than, uh, and the army says, ah, 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 no go, we run the show, we've always run the show, we're running the show again, and they took over. So, uh, uh, the, uh, and now, of course, even our, our president is uh, being released from his prison, and his sons are being released, and so forth and so on. So, the, 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 the message from that is that the spontaneous uprising has to be aware of the people who join in to support them a little late to take them over. Or whether they're capable, I, just, I consider this part of the, the chaotic situation now. And uh, then we could go on about how the, how shall I say, the geopolitics of the Middle East uh, and its complexities are all part of, 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 of the chaos and the unpredictability and the constantly changing geopolitical alliances. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the fact that it's pretty hard to find who are the good guys. Okay, please, in the front here. Uh, thank you. 
Uh, I'm a student here. Uh, I'm Elon from Brazil. So uh, taking the good guys and also back to Latin America. Uh, the left in Brazil and perhaps also Argentina and Uruguay, not Uruguay, but Argentina, they felt they were betrayed by the, the current leftist governments. And it feels like this model has run out. Brazil is not growing anymore. So is Argentina. They have been, uh, the, well, in equality, there have been certain, uh, uh, certainly social improvements, but still uh, the elite is richer than ever. The same with, I don't know, China, who would be supposedly an alternative. So uh, I would just like to be more optimistic about this global left, but. You, uh, you want me to tell you what to do in Brazil? No. <laughs> <laughs> You've just pointed to another split. I mean, there's not only the split in Brazil between uh, uh, the people in the Amazon who uh, say that they're coming in anyway. You promised they wouldn't, but they're coming in. They're, they're chopping down the, our trees and, and, and so forth and so on and killing our leaders and so forth, and you're not protecting us. Uh, but there's also, of course, more urban elements who uh, said you really were going to go much further than you said. Um, but, but they're saying that everywhere, you see. It's not just Brazil, they're saying that in Ecuador, and they're saying that in Venezuela, huh? okay? And they're not to speak of Chile, uh, you know. So, uh, and, and in, 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 in some sense, you know, uh, the ultra-conservative government of, 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 of Colombia doesn't look so bad these days compared uh, to these others. So what can you do? Well, yes, of course, Brazil is, uh, has run into the uh, collapse of the uh, petroleum market. And, um, uh, uh, everybody has. Uh, that, that's, of course, also something that's been going up and down wildly and will continue to do that, right? And it's not, it's only partially manipulated um, uh, politically. It is partially manipulated politically, but it's, but with too many players. Uh, Saudi Arabia's position is not the same as the United States' position, for example, uh, uh, on that. And, of course, um, it hurts any government who was dependent on that. Well, you know, that's also the state of Texas. I mean, it isn't only the uh, Lula or, uh, um, or Korea or, or any of these governments that are being affected by, by this collapse. Um, and if tomorrow it goes suddenly up, and it may, it may very well because uh, the, uh, the Saudis are playing are along for the time being, but they risk losing uh, because part of the game in selling oil is not merely the price you pay, but the, uh, the continuity, the market share. And they're worried about losing a market share permanently to other places. So you don't know what their politics is going to tell them to do three months from now. If, if, if you're sitting in a country which is being affected by this, you, you may say, look, 
if we can hold out for 18 months, who knows? All right. Uh, so um, they they tighten their belt for 18 months. Can they get their population to go along for tightening their belt for 18 months? Well, that varies, right? In some places they may, in some places they they don't. Lula actually played a, a kind of brilliant foreign policy game for a long time and did get uh, structures, CELAC and um, what, what's the other one, UNASUR and, um, uh, and so forth. And this really did um, weaken the United States still further um, and uh, create a different atmosphere in Latin America, but uh, he also did other things. Oh. Okay, we got a yeah, a couple more here. It, may I take say a couple of questions and you answer them together? Yes. Fine. Good. Okay, go ahead. Um, thanks. Thanks very much for your talk. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Saleh, anthropologist from Goldsmith. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you see me? <laughs> um, basically, um, I was very interested to hear. I would be grateful to hear further more about the, the possible methods or forms of restructuring knowledge during this period of the structural <laughs> crisis. So in relation to education regimes, in relation to value, such and such. And I think it's a very important question given the place in which, where we're sitting today. Okay. So thanks. Thank you. Okay, great. And there's a man um, in the very back. I can't talk if you had your hand up or not. Maybe not. Okay. Yeah, then another one in the center here behind his computer. We're in the center with his computers in, yeah. I'm a visiting uh, research fellow in, uh, at the King's College. And uh, about economic history, or in order to have the alternative system, I think uh, there might be some economic thought is needed. The, uh, new, for the new, or the since we have one steady state, in order to deviate to another one, uh, what kind of the uh, theory uh, can emerge from economics or from alternative disciplines? Uh, have we already seen the, uh, the start of such alternative uh, way of thinking, or uh, it's not yet come? Okay. Really I, he's asking, in order to move from one steady state to another, do we require the intellectual assistance of a new way of thinking, an alternative yeah. economics or something yeah, okay, like that? Yeah. And have you seen this emerging? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And is there one more question? Or should we close it there? Yeah. The in the gray sweater on by the aisle. Yeah. I would like just to make a question to the professor about the butterfly effect. Do you think this kind of uh, idea of butterfly effect can apply to every kind of, uh, uh, any kind of change in whatever kind of social and economic environment? Okay, do you think the butterfly effect can accumulate into a complete structural change? Is that the question? Yeah, I mean, for every kind of social, 
for yeah. every kind of social and economic environment. So that means not only for politics or government, yeah. but even for right. uh, industry or something like that. Okay, can this affect everything, not just politics and economics? Okay, do you want to give a try to those three? Okay, well, actually, <laughs> they're more or less the same question. <laughs> um, uh, but it's, a, it's another lecture. <laughs> uh, which, that is to say, look, The structures of knowledge that we live amidst, uh, and which explain the coming into existence of the London School of Economics and Political Science, among other many other things, right? The structures of knowledge in which we exist have not been eternally there. Uh, and they were more or less uh, created in the late 18th century, beginning in the late 18th century as a part of the process of transformation of uh, the modern world system. And which, uh, if I abbreviate enormously, uh, resulted in what we call the um, divorce between science and philosophy uh, and the assumption that they had different um, methodologies and that they both thought the other was wrong uh, and uh, there were the strong versions in which both said the other is nonsense and the soft version in which they said well we'll, we'll split the bill you, you let us have this part you have that part kind of um, okay so and this resulted in the revival of the university, um, which uh, doesn't go, yeah. LSE and Oxford are as recent as each other because the fact that there was something called Oxford in the 13th century is irrelevant to the modern university, uh, which uh, emerges in Oxford and everywhere else in the late 19th century with its departments with its uh, with its degrees with its full-time students and its full-time faculty and etc 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 now this system of knowledge actually blinded us to uh, an awful lot of what was going on but it was part of the normal system when that normal system begins to come into question, so does the systems of knowledge within it. Uh, so we have the emergence uh, of complexity science. We have the emergence uh, of um, what are they? Uh, the cultural studies, in the broadest sense of the term, and so forth, which both basically argue that instead of moving apart, they sh are indeed now moving uh, to towards each other and towards the recreation of a single structure of uh, a single uh, methodology of, uh, of analysis. Um, reaching closer, how shall I say, they are now part of, uh, a crucial part of the uh, transformation process. 
because they speak to the first question, which I said you have to deal with three issues, the, the, the um, intellectual one of what's going on. If we can't resolve this methodological issue, uh, we can't see what is going on. Um, is there progress? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, some, there is more awareness today than there was, say, 30 or 40 years ago of the limitations of the structures of knowledge of which we were uh, a part. Uh, there's still a lot of resistance to change. Um, you have to... How shall I say? You have to take into account the politics of, of transforming the structures of knowledge. Because disciplines are three things. Disciplines are claims to turf, right? Disciplines are structures uh, of governance. And disciplines are cultures. Okay? Now, even if we change the first, even if we get to uh, rethink the, uh, the intellectual issues, we have to implement them. That means we have to transform institutions. What institutions? Institutions like universities, institutions like international structures of, of knowledge, etc. And the people who run those things are very resistant for good reason. If you're a 45-year-old head of a department in a university and somebody comes along to you and says, now listen, this department as a, as a claim to turf makes no intellectual sense. It was something you invented in the 19th century and for the following reasons makes no intellectual sense at all. So we should merge your department with 10 other departments and then see what happens. <laughs> and this 45-year-old says, and what happens to me when we do that? I've invested in building this structure and I, I to moving up in it. If you merge me with ten other departments, I may be out completely. Right? So I don't buy it. And I give you the following reasons and he gives you the following reasons. It's irrelevant what reasons he gives you. <laughs> so so the the fact that you uh, that intellectually the present structures of knowledge don't make sense, and I don't have time to argue that, but don't make any kind of intellectual sense. Doesn't mean that you can transform the structures of knowledge. But if you can't transform the structures of knowledge, you won't be able to have the butterfly effect. So it's, it all, everything turns back upon itself. It's all intertwined, right? And, um, I guess, uh, so 
do we need a new way of thinking? Yeah, we need a new way of thinking. That's absolutely true. Um, do we need... Uh, will it change the socioeconomic environment? Yeah, if the... If the... If, if, if the... Uh, uh, camp of Porto Alegre wins. And if not, it won't. All right, as we near the end here, I'm worried that there might be an excess of pessimism ah. in the audience. And so I'm going to try to rectify that in the spirit of Wallerstein, which is more on the side of the spirit of Porto Alegre. The, we've got two big reasons to be pessimistic that have surfaced here. One is that we shouldn't try to wish away the deep-rooted structures of knowledge or political economy. They really are deep-rooted. We can't just wish them away. And the other is that we are eventually disillusioned by every social movement. Now, that's pretty pessimistic. The optimism here, I think, is, Emmanuel said at the very beginning, history happens. It always happens, even when we tend to imagine that what exists is the permanently normal change always happens. So believe in change. And second, in the chaos of systemic crisis, seemingly small actions and new ideas, even seemingly small ones, can accumulate in large effects. So believe that you can help produce change. Now join me in thanking Emmanuel Wallerstein.